Welcome back to our Maryland Politics and Policy Podcast. I'm your host, Brittany. We are here today with Marceline White, a dedicated advocate for Marylanders. As Executive Director of the Maryland Consumer Rights Coalition, Marceline is working daily to ensure that everyone in our state receives equal opportunity and that businesses are serving those in their communities and not targeting them. In addition to her work with the Consumer Rights Coalition, Marceline has worked to advance labor rights, environmental justice, and international trade issues amongst a myriad of others. She has been featured in both national and international media, and we're so glad to have her joining us today to highlight her critically important work in our state. All right, so thank you so much for joining us on the podcast, Marceline. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Um, And just to get us started, can you tell our listeners a little bit more about your background and how you got started doing the work that you're doing with the Maryland Consumer Rights Coalition? Sure, absolutely. So I started out actually in an undergrad wanting to be a journalist, wanting to do muckraking really. So the idea of uh, letting people know about social problems and issues with the idea that they would act on it. And um, through that was doing organizing on college campuses. And my first job was working with the public interest research groups um, around the country on consumer protection issues. And later on moved on to look at international economic policies and economic justice. But when the financial crisis happened, I had been doing work internationally and living in Baltimore City, and it just seemed um, it just seemed like it was time to turn my attention to home. You know, I didn't really have time to focus on some of the economic injustices in our city and in the state when we live in one of the wealthiest states in the nation. Yet you know, we have these persistent pockets of poverty and um, equity gaps. So I uh, got to join the Maryland Consumer Rights Coalition as executive director at that time, and it was a great fit. Um, I had a young son at the time who's now a teen, and I was able to work in my state, um, based in my city, and work on these really important issues of financial inclusion and economic um, equity. Well, like you said, they are definitely are um, incredibly important issues. Um, and specifically speaking to financial inclusion and economic injustice issues, a lot of our listeners probably don't know that a facet of the work that you do has to do with uh, community benefits. For instance, whenever bank branches are uh, interested in merging, you are supposed to provide some sort of benefit to your community. So can you tell us a little bit more about community, community benefits and what that means? Absolutely. So in the 1970s, actually, coming out of all of the issues which we well know in the state and in the city on redlining, um, there was a Community Reinvestment Act that was created at the federal level. And basically that act says just what you articulated, that if a bank is taking the deposits of a community, the bank has a responsibility not just to take and hold the money, but to give back and to reinvest in the community. And they look at how banks lend in the community Um, both for mortgages and for small businesses, but also how they support nonprofits and community development organizations and other kinds of community investments. So the banks have this obligation and the community can get engaged. Even if a bank, um, like if a bank branch is going to close, the community can get engaged and say that they want to see how the bank is still going to provide benefits for that neighborhood, for that community. Um, And when there's a merger or acquisition, it's a really good opportunity to take a pause and look at how the bank has been performing. Have they been providing um, funding that's equal for black neighborhoods and white neighborhoods? Have they been funding, have their home loan mortgages been more or less equitable for the city or the, um, the 
area that they're that is being assessed and if not what do they need to do to bring that up so that their so that their um, loans and their access to credit is equal for everyone in the um, in the statistical area in the area that they're um, assessed on you brought up the issues of redlining and uh, racial injustice. Um, so can you tell us a little bit more about this work that the Consumer Rights Coalition does in terms of making sure that communities have fair access to banking? Absolutely. So at the moment, we're actually engaged in some work on a bank branch closure of the Bank of America branch in Reisterstown Road. And that's about the eighth bank branch Bank of America has closed in the Baltimore City area in the past six, seven years. But of the bank branches they've been closing, the majority have been in majority black neighborhoods and the branches that have stayed open, the full service branches, have been in majority white neighborhoods. And that's a real problem for us and it's a real problem for our community because you know, we already talk about food deserts and what we're really talking about here are banking deserts. So you're starving communities of access to credit and you're starving communities of access to banking services and full service banking. And this is a real issue for our older adults in our city. Um, in Baltimore City, public transit is um, not good, to say the least. It's an understatement. And if you move a full-service bank branch and you tell us that there's another one five miles away, that could be two buses for someone and an hour and a half. Um, we have a lot of people who don't have access to cars and who need good public transit. And in the meantime, taking away these kind of full-service bank branches um, takes away the opportunity to get good banking credit, you know, to apply for a mortgage loan in your neighborhood, to apply for a small business loan in your neighborhood from tellers who know you. And for older adults, um, they've said time and time again, they want the security of being able to go into a bank branch. They want to know the teller. And it's a real disservice to them um, to take that away from them. A lot of them don't feel secure just going to an ATM at night. Um, so for a lot of reasons, we're very concerned about this. And in fact, in Reisterstown, where the bank branch was closing, the deposits in the community had grown more than 230%. So the community was using the bank branch. That wasn't the issue. So we're going to, we're meeting with Bank of America officials with community groups and discussing how they will need to continue to serve the community and what they can do to serve the community's needs. That's definitely something for us to keep an eye on then. Great. Continue. Absolutely. Um, so I've asked you and you've given us a lot of really great information about the, the work that the coalition does kind of in the banking sector. Mm -hmm. um, so what are some of the other issues that the coalition's working on? Great. Um, let me talk about two briefly. Um, one is auto insurance. So I think anyone who drives in Maryland probably thinks their auto insurance is too high. And in fact, uh, our auto insurance premiums as of 2016 were the, were the ninth highest in the nation. So they are very high compared to a lot of other states. And there are a couple reasons for that. One reason is that a few years ago, I believe it was 2010, the General Assembly passed legislation to increase the, our, what we're required to have is limited liability insurance. So the minimum we can have now went from a 2040 policy to a 3060 policy. So that increased rates right there. Um, but the other issue is that the Maryland Insurance Administration allows insurance companies to set rates based both on the risk that you, the likelihood that you'll have an accident, your risk of, for driving, but also on the likelihood that you'll file a claim. And so for the second piece of it, that's where our concern lies. So in Maryland, they can look at your credit score, they can look at your zip code, they can look at whether you're a woman or a man, if you're married or unmarried, 
if you own a home, if you rent a home, if what your high, if you have a high school degree or a master's degree and what your education is. And all of those factors are combined to create your rate. Now, everyone in the world, consumers don't know how they weight all of those pieces because we're not allowed to. They also pass legislation making that a trade secret. So you don't know how they put these pieces together, but we do know that they use all these pieces. And what we found is it amounts to economic discrimination. If you run quotes, um, what ends up happening is that people who rent pay more than people who um, own a house. People who have a master's degree pay less than someone with a high school degree. And our recent work has shown that if you're a woman, you pay more than a man after age 25. So we always think that men pay more because they're more reckless. Women actually pay more after the age of 25, and it may be because they're more likely to file a claim. So what we found is that um, in a couple places, a couple of insurance companies have increased the rate um, 39% if you're a woman. So that's $458 just for being a woman. Wow. It's like a women's penalty. And another increased it by 29%, and that was $500 annually. And even more so if you're a single woman, you pay more than if you're a married woman. And so this has nothing to do with how many accidents you've gotten into. It's just based on your sex and your marital status. Right. And we think it's wrong. A lot of other states have gotten rid of these very antiquated policies. And so we're looking um, to work in the General Assembly this year to get rid of these factors and make sure that there's really like gender equity in auto insurance. And we're also going to be looking at education and occupation because, again, New York just got rid of using education and occupation when they set their auto insurance rates. And again, there are probably 10, 15 states that don't use this because I think a track driver is probably at least as good a driver as possibly a professor that drives just to and from campus. Um, but we're not rating that way. We need So we want to rate the risk of your actual driving. So that's one issue we're working on. And the other, which I think has been in the news a bit, is looking at um, this idea of modern-day debtors' prisons, so looking at body attachments. I think there were articles in the Baltimore Sun and the New York Times and ProPublica about um, Jared Kushner and um, his management companies and how they've acted in Maryland, but particularly Baltimore County and Baltimore City have been... um, where a lot of the properties are. Absolutely. He's been very aggressive about pursuing renters who have not been able to pay their rent to the point that his company is one of the most aggressive in doing what we allow in Maryland called a body attachment, which is a lien on your body, which means that if you are, you know, pulled over for a traffic violation or anything else and they run this, they can, you can be picked up and taken and arrested because you owed a debt collector a certain amount of money and you hadn't shown up originally, whether you got the summons or not, to declare what your assets were. Um, and so this is for debts that are less than $5,000, some as low as like 500 and you're being picked up. You don't, you, a lot of people don't even know they have this attachment on their body, of course. And um, if you don't have the money to um, pay a bond that they said, people languished in jail for a weekend. So we think it's completely wrong to criminalize poverty. And there's a huge racial um, aspect to that as well. And we don't think that anyone should be in jail because they didn't pay a landlord. Um, you know, that's something you work out in other ways, but it's not a, it's not a jailable offense. You don't lose your rights over the weekend um, for that. So we worked with now AG Brian Frosch a couple years ago to limit that practice. 
but we want to do more to even limit it because one of the things we're finding is a lot of times people are picked up on a Friday and because there's no there's no court to take them to at that point, the courts are closed, they just sit in jail all weekend. So you've got people who haven't done anything wrong except be poor um, that are in jail for the weekend. And it's just wrong. Um, so we're working on uh, we're working on legislation to really limit that practice and try to get rid of these kinds of you know modern day modern day kind of Dickensian um, practices. So that's a big issue we're working on. And then just kind of along with that, um, raising what people can keep when they're being pursued by debt collectors. So right now in Maryland, we haven't updated our laws in more than thirty years. So, you know, the cost of living has gone up, right. um, everything else has gone up, but um, what people can keep when they're pursued by a debt collector hasn't moved. Wow. So one of the things that's very modest but important is um, you can keep 70% of your minimum wage so they can garnish wages. Okay. And we've seen like in certain counties, they have like 19,000 garnishments. Um, others have like, you know, 12, 14,000. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a huge issue for a lot of people that are cash strapped. Um, we want to be able to tie the minimum wage to the Maryland minimum wage, which is higher, and keep, you know, like 80, 85%, not 70. And in Maryland, you have a wild card, so you can either choose to keep $6,000 or a car or that amount from your house, but you have to choose, which makes no sense. Right. Like even Virginia lets you keep a car. So we're, we're saying you need, to, you need a car to get to work to be able to have income to pay off these debts. So let's at least say, no, you get to keep a car worth a certain value amount, you know. Um, and then you get to keep a little bit of money in your bank account. They can't wipe you out entirely if you've been able to save so that if there's another emergency, you have a little bit of money to help you tie you, tie you along. They can't wipe out everything. So we're also going to be looking at that this year. Those are all incredibly important issues, so we'll definitely be keeping an eye on that. Fabulous. Yeah, I'd love to come and talk to you more as things get rolling. That's work that you are currently working on. It's work we're currently working on, so we are doing some research right now. The way we work is we usually do research to just document the facts, show what's actually happening in our state, not just nationally, but what what is happening here. We try to use an intersectional lens, so we try to look at race, gender, um, other factors, demographics, uh, what zip codes, what counties, and we'll be releasing some stuff early next year, and then we also are going to have legislation for all of this. Well, great. That was actually um, what my next question was going to be for you, (laughs) is kind of looking ahead to the legislative session, um, what will you and the coalition really be prioritizing? So we're really thinking about it in a couple different broad buckets, but one is really kind of a debtor's bill of rights, and it's these two pieces about the debtor's prisons the body attachments um, and the debt collection, um, the auto, the auto work. So um, this auto insurance work is going to be kind of an auto insurance driver's bill of rights, and then we have a whole another group of um, student loan issues. So it's student borrowers' bill of rights, and one is that's going to look at student loan servicing, which I think is a big issue for again almost everyone. It's one point three trillion dollars in debt nationally. Yeah. Um, in Maryland, I think the average amount is like $27,000, $29,000 that people have taken out. And, you know, people are having a lot of problems getting their, um, contacting their student loan servicer, getting into the right payment plan. A lot of times they'll be told one thing on one call and another thing on another call. So it's a huge debt bubble. And a couple states have passed Student Loan Borrower's Bill of Rights, which is, creates an ombudsman. So someone we can call in Maryland to help resolve issues or complaints. They'll also be licensed by 
any student loan servicer would be licensed by the Department of Labor and Licensing, which means they'd have to undergo an examination, a licensing, and an enforcement program. So we'd have more power and they'd be they'd have more we'd have more consumer protections that are in place to look at the student loan servicing. So it'll be that and also some other some other bills in that kind of bucket in that packet around transparency so you know before you before you enroll like what your what your loan burden might be and you have more clarity and more transparency on those bills. Absolutely. And um, I mean, looking back a little ways, is there anything from the past year that you feel uh, particularly proud of that the coalition was able to accomplish? Great question. Yes, because um, <laughs> we're, we have one thing that we're all, two things really, but um, that we're always happy to talk about. The first is just um, on the auto insurance. One of the things we were able to accomplish last year was getting rid of what's called the widow's penalty. So along with the other um, gender-based stuff, we found that widows were being charged when your spouse died. When women were being charged, their price was increasing in auto insurance by 39% or so. Men's was um, increasing by 0.3. So if you're, you go through the tragedy of having losing your spouse, um, if you're a woman, all of a sudden you're paying a lot more in auto insurance. And if you're a man, you're really not. So we got rid of the widow's penalty last year in the General Assembly. And what we found is it saved on average, about $453 um, per policy for the women who've been widowed. And we think that's about 16,000 people last year. Wow. So real significant money in your pocket for these women. Um, The other piece is that with our partners at the Cash Campaign of Maryland, we stopped payday lending in Maryland. Um, You know, we've had a 33% rate cap within the state for many, many years. But payday lenders keep finding loopholes in our code to exploit and come in and offer new products. And these out-of-state lenders were offering 400% consumer loans to people um, through an open line of credit. So we were able to work with the General Assembly to shut that down, um, make it clear that everything falls at the, under our rate cap of 33% or less, and really um, chase out these lenders. But it was a huge fight. Um, we. You know, so many people across the state called, made calls, sent emails, um, because we were up against um, the payday lenders who spent 171,000 on lobbyists. And it was, you know, myself and my colleague at another organization. So um, really had to rely on grassroots and luckily um, everyone was very responsive. Very, very cool. Um, And those were definitely significant victories, um, as you say. We're extremely happy to have the coalition looking out for us and all Marylanders. Um, And thank you again so much for joining us on the podcast, Marceline. All right. Thank you. You can join us again in two weeks for another episode of Our Maryland's Politics and Policy podcast. But in the meantime, you can also keep up with us on Facebook, Twitter, and on our website at OurMaryland.us. (laughs) 